Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Been there and done that. Come on. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. I heard it. You're thinking, oh no, (laughs) he's starting over. It was about two years ago to the day that we first studied that particular verse. may interest you to know, I am aware of at least two pastors who were teaching their congregation through the book of Romans. They got done with chapter 8. They felt like their congregation was not getting it, so indeed they did start over. Don't worry. We're not doing that. All right, Pastor, why, why begin with Romans chapter 1? Why, why, why take time to begin here to read those verses? Take us all the way back here. Because these verses, 16 and 17 of chapter 1, this, these are, the, these are the, the critical verses of the book. It is, as you would call it, the thesis statement. And it has important bearing... On Romans chapter 11. I mean, when you, when you read these two verses, these verses are simple in one sense, and yet they are majestic and profound, because they, they lay out for us what is the, the very heart of God's design for the gospel. In fact, it has been argued that these verses lay out then the simple premise that Paul then takes the next eight chapters to unpack. Paul, Paul, in essence, takes time to explain how is it that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? How is it that the just shall live by faith? How, how is it that this is the means by which we are made right? And so, so Paul gives us then this, this devastating portrait of the absolute sinfulness and rebellion and unworthiness of man that that every human being ever stands under God's righteous and just judgment. But God in His goodness, God acting on no other premise but His own grace, not on the premise of my works, not on the premise of my worth, not on the premise of my goodness, not because I can contribute something to His work, God simply motivated by His own grace and His own glory, provides a means by which I can come out from under the judgment of God and be made right with Him. He allowed His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to bear in His body the wrath 
that should have been directed toward mine. My unrighteousness gets transferred to Jesus, and in return, I can get the righteousness of Christ transferred to me. I can therefore proclaim I'm no longer a slave to sin and the flesh, but now I can be a slave unto righteousness. Now I can live in faith and obedience. And the means by which then all of this transaction takes place is by placing my faith in Christ, crucified, resurrected, as the one and only means of salvation. This doesn't mean I would be without sin. I still may struggle with it. Nonetheless, Paul reminds us there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then on top of that, Paul says how God by His grace is not only saved, but He's given me His very Spirit. And His Spirit serves to secure my soul. His Spirit gives me confidence that I am a child of God. It is His Spirit that comforts me in the midst of my suffering. And all of this then is brought to to this grand climactic statement where Paul at the end of chapter 8 then encourages us that God is working all facets of our lives to ensure that when we get to the end of this life and step into the next, that we will be made into the image of Christ. It's the first eight chapters. How's that? Say, Pastor, that... You took two years to do all that? All right, no, I get that. All right, the last two years, wow, okay. But then there's a problem. After Paul spends eight chapters defining the gospel, he then defends it. Some of the hardest chapters in the Bible. Romans 9 through 11, here's the problem. After saying all of this, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, had made it explicit. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first. Uh Uh-oh. We got a bit of a snafu here. Because the vast majority of Jews don't believe the gospel. Even in Paul's day. In fact, even by the time you get to the book of Romans being written, there has been a dramatic switch. Though the initial converts to the gospel, the day of Pentecost, those initial ones who formed uh, the early church, those numbers have flopped. And by far, there are significantly more Gentiles flooding into the church, in particular in Rome. So, what's the deal? I mean, is verse 16 still right? Is Romans 1, 16 still right? Is the, is the gospel, the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and, and the Gentile? We get the Gentile part, but the Jew? So Paul then turns his attention to defending this gospel. Because many would be wondering, then why are so many Jews unbelievers? If they are God's chosen people, if they are the people of covenant, if, if they are the ones that God promised to give His everlasting love to, what's the deal. And so Paul then lays out for us the case of God's electing, predestinating purposes. And that just because God made a promise to Israel does not mean that every single person with Jewish blood running through their bodies would be saved. It's a difficult chapter. 
describing for us how God has been doing the work of election all along. He chose Abraham over anybody else. He chose uh, Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over over Esau. He chose Moses over Pharaoh. This is chapter 9. And yet at the same time, in spite of the fact that God's work of salvation is first and foremost and fundamentally a work of His sovereign grace to choose those who would be saved. Chapter 10 is all about man's responsibility to believe. The gospel is proclaimed, and those to whom it is proclaimed are to believe it. They are to submit to it. They are to, by faith, trust in it. It's presented us with those twin realities where the gears don't line up for you. Where I believe both, and I'm okay with both. Paul's not quite done with the issue. It's because chapter 10, and go ahead and flip a few pages over to it. You're thinking, whew, all right, he's serious. He's not going to start back in chapter 1. All right. So in chapter 10, he's, he's not only saying that, that, that people need to hear the gospel and believe it, they are responsible to it, while yes, salvation is a work of God's electing grace, at the same time, man is supposed to believe and man is held responsible for not believing. God, God is, is described here in chapter 10 as giving ample opportunity to Israel. In fact, verse 21 says this, But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands. Meaning, I've given you the gospel again and again and again. I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In other words, in spite of the fact that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, and it has been shared with the Jew, and they have heard the message, they still remain stiff-necked and stubborn in terms of a majority of them. So this elicits another question. Chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away His people? So if this is what's happened, God has given the gospel first to the Jew been to the Gentile, they still don't believe. They've heard, but they still don't believe. They still don't trust. By faith, they've still not submitted or bowed the knee to the gospel. And so Paul then is asking a question that it sounds like he's already been asked. Does this mean then God has given the boot to Israel? Are they out of there? Has God decided to ditch that whole deal? And now Israel's been replaced with the Gentiles. Is, is God done with them? So has God cast them away? In other words, you know, has God rejected them? Has God tossed them out? Have they gone so far? Have they rebelled so much? Have they now been stiff-necked for so long that God is wiping His hands of them? To which Paul responds with that emphatic denial. He's used it before when he's asked this kind of leading rhetorical question to which he says, certainly not. No possible way. That is absolutely the worst conclusion you could draw. 
There's no way God's given up. God's not abandoned. God's not rejected. God has not tossed out His people. But again, it brings up the question. Is chapter 1, verse 16 still right? Is the gospel, the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew, then to the Gentile? This is Paul's concern in chapter 11. This chapter really is then Paul fleshing this kind of question out. He asks a couple of more that are kind of, you know, ancillary, secondary kinds of, of questions, or at least subcategories of this primary issue. And Paul is then going to spend the rest of the chapter defending the fact that God has not given up on Israel. Now, you may hear that and think, all right, pastor, so this seems like it's going to be kind of a, is this a teaching kind of thing? I mean, we're going to be talking about what God has done with Israel. Is this kind of like, a, you know, are we going back in history? Are we doing some of that kind of stuff? Some of you are thinking, does that mean I can... Can I check out for the next few weeks, all right, till we get to chapter 12? Chapter 12 is the application of this grand gospel that Paul has laid out. Chapter 12, like I said last week, uh, it, it's, it, it, it leaves you nowhere to run and hide, all right? Chapters 12 through 16 is Paul then taking that finger and doing something that you're not supposed to do, pointing it at you, right? Pointing it at every single one of us. He is going to absolutely take the gospel and point the finger at you and to say, this is what it should look like in your life. But before we get to that, we're going to have one final kind of seminary class deal here about Israel. Though we will be talking about what the word here says about God's plans as it relates to Israel. This, to me, is a really timely kind of message because I think it addresses, then we'll be able to take what God says about Israel and to Israel and about the gospel and it being the power of God unto salvation. We can take that and we can broaden its application. Because my guess is everyone in this room knows somebody who's a little stiff-necked toward the gospel. And when I say that, I don't, I don't mean the believer who maybe struggles with sanctification and obedience. Though that's a, Paul will get to that in chapter 12, all right? So, but Paul, the concern here is you know, those who hear the gospel over and over again, not, not the people in you know, the most remote parts of the world who've never heard the name, not, not those folks. I mean the people who have, been, who have heard it again and again and again and again. Is God still saving them? Can that kind of person still be saved? Is it possible that God has given up on them? As we turn our attention then to the first ten verses, we get the first of what are two primary points that he's making, two primary ideas that Paul is then going to discuss. As, as, as Paul defends his, his clear rejection of the question, meaning, No, God has not given up on Israel. What I think he does is he again affirms for us what is this essential truth. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. God is still in the business of saving people. So, kind of two aspects of it. Number one, here where you can fill in a blank, I got another slide that I will put up there eventually. 
for now, this will be the only blank you'll fill in this morning. And that is God's current work of grace. The first issue that Paul addresses is what I would describe as his current work of grace. Meaning, beginning in verse 1, and then really in several parts of chapter 11, Paul makes it clear God is still at work among Israel. God is still at work saving people. When I say God's current work of grace, I mean the work of grace God was doing in Paul's day, and I would argue in terms of the timeline of human history, Paul's day is our day. And if that's a weird, complicated idea, and you want more about that, send me an email. All right? But just to know, biblically speaking, so when Paul talks about the last days, he means every day since the beginning of the church until now. All right? That's, that's, what, he, that's what he means. We are all in the same day, meaning the church age. So when I say God's current work of grace, I think we see in these verses what is evidence of God's still ongoing work of saving people. God's gospel is still His power unto salvation. So, notice how Paul is going to defend this. He's going to give two examples, two illustrations here. And if we follow along then in verse 1, after he asks this question, I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. Notice his first example. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So it's interesting. What is Paul's first answer, or at least piece of evidence to the question? Has God cast away Israel? His answer is no. Absolutely not. Well, Paul, how can you be so certain? I mean, if they're so stiff-necked, if they're so stubborn, if they're so rebellious, how do you know God has not given up on Israel? And Paul's like, duh. I mean, he didn't actually say that. All right, that's not in the text, okay? So don't quote me on that. Nowhere does the Greek ever say, duh. But Paul does, I don't know, to me, maybe I read my snark into him, okay? That could definitely be a weakness of mine. But I can imagine Paul, if he were face-to-face, saying, of course he's not rejected. Who are you talking to? I am an Israelite. I'm of the seed of Abraham. Just so you know, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, there's some question as to why he refers to this. Paul does this also in Philippians chapter 3. It's another place where he kind of lays out his credentials, though, for another reason. Now, there could be a couple of reasons for this. One, Benjamin was definitely a favored son of Jacob. And so, it it appears that, you know, the folks who were of the tribe of Benjamin... uh, I don't know if they had a bit of a chip on their shoulder. You know, if they felt kind of that favoritism running through, but there are some who suggest that. You know, the baby syndrome, right? Baby of the family kind of getting special treatment, which absolutely happens. All right, I'm the baby of a family, and that is absolutely true. Sorry to the babies in the room. You had it better than your other siblings. All right, I'm just telling you, that's just the case, okay? It is. It just, it just is, and now it's out there, and now the babies in the room hate me. But that is the case. It's been our secret. That's true. All right. I think it's because by the time I came around, my parents were just really tired, right? I mean, they were just really tired. It's like, I don't have effort. I don't have any effort for this. You do whatever you want. Okay, so 
So is that why? Was Benjamin kind of favored like that, maybe? It's also suggested that the tribe of Benjamin was significant because they were one of two tribes that could trace their lineage all the way back to Babylon, so the time of exile. So you're talking centuries before this time. They, they could still track where they came from. I think all of that really would be a side note to what Paul is fundamentally saying. Of course God is still saving Israelites because I'm as Israelite as it gets. I've got all the credentials that you need. I can, I can demonstrate my own family tree, my own genealogy. I am full-blooded Jew. Now notice how he follows that up, though. He follows it up with this statement in verse 2. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. We've already talked about this. This is Romans 9. Part of the work of God in salvation is a foreknowing, and I I will tell you, biblically, theologically, according to the doctrine of God, there's no distinction between God's foreknowledge and foreordination. These are together qualities, all right? In other words, that which God foreknows, He foreordains, and that is by definition. So, so, in other words, Paul's kind of going back. He's kind of alluding back to that chapter to say, look, God has never promised to save every Israelite in the first place. And I'm an example of that. God is saving Jews. So, no, He's not cast them out. He's not forgotten them. He's not given up on them. I'm one of them. There are those whom God has foreknown. They include a people of the nation of Israel, and God is saving them. So, Paul uses himself as an example Then he's going to go into the Old Testament. He's going to give a second illustration here. Notice the next part of verse 2. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. So so Paul addresses a particular story from the Old Testament. You may recognize it. Elijah the prophet feels like he alone stands against a wicked king, his pagan wicked queen. This results in that great showdown on Mount Carmel, right? You can read about this in 1 Kings 19, where, where Elijah, they both build altars and the prophets of Baal, pagan worship, they build an altar and Elijah builds an altar and they're going to see whose God is is real. The prophets of Baal go crazy. They, it's, it's really kind of a graphic text. They cut themselves. It, it's, they go wild because their God never answers. In fact, at one point, I don't know if you know this or not, but at one point, Elijah asks the prophets of Baal. This is going to sound inappropriate. Now I've got your attention, right? He asks the prophets of Baal, maybe your God is in the bathroom. That's what he does. He asks them that. Maybe your God is going to the bathroom. Going to the bathroom, all right? So Elijah had a bit of snark, all right? So kind of like that guy too. And so what what does Elijah do? Elijah covers his with water, right? Soaks the thing. Fire from heaven comes down. So we we know about this grand stand of Elijah. And we think of Elijah as this man of great courage and boldness. And yet, what does it sound like? God, I alone i am the only guy standing against this paganism. I'm the only guy standing against this rebellion. I'm the only one in this whole country who seems to be God-fearing. But the implication being, 
God, you need to kill all the rest of the people in the land. All right? That's his implication, by the way. But notice how God responds. Verse 4. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved... Notice who's in charge of this work. I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you think you're alone. And let me suggest something here. Go back and read it in context. Here's what I think is going on. I think God is chastising Elijah for playing the victim. You know what I think he's telling Elijah? I know we don't like to hear this. Our modern evangelical ears don't always like to hear this. Because there's this strain of evangelicalism today that just really wants to talk about how bad everything is. I call it whiny evangelicalism. There's a lot of it out there. There's a lot of music out there that's just whiny, whiny, all right? And there's a lot of books being written about it. You know what I think, what I think God's telling Elijah? Stop whining. I've got 7,000 other people that according to my sovereign grace, my own design, my own providential work have ensured that these 7,000 people are faithful to me. In other words, Paul goes back into the Old Testament, drawing out the story of Elijah as a way to saying, really what this is illustrating for us is that there has always been this work among God's people. Though if you read the history of the nation of Israel, far more of it is about rebellion and disobedience and God's judgment than about faith and trust in the Lord. In fact, very little about it is faith and trust in the Lord. There's very little faith and trust in the Lord when you read the Old Testament in Israel's history. And Paul's using this as a way to say God has always had His remnant. Notice what he goes on to say then at verse, in verse 5. He brings all this out by point of application. Even so then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Even at this present time. Just like then, there are those now who are being saved. And though Paul doesn't refer to it, I wonder if in his mind he's not taking them back to Pentecost. He's not taking them back to those early days of the church when the vast majority of believers were Jews. In fact, it was Jews who got saved at Pentecost who were there from Rome because they were there for the feast days who then traveled back to Rome and started the church at Rome. So I think this is Paul's way of saying, look, I know it looks like the majority of the nation, even though they've heard the gospel again and again and again, the majority of of Israelites seem, seem like they've turned their back. God has not rejected them. God is still at work saving people. In fact, then he goes on to add, after using the word election of grace, he then says something we've already talked about many, many times. Verse 6. And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. may sound like a weird way to say it, but his bottom line is this. This is how God's always saved people, by grace. It's it's always been by grace, which by default means it can't be by works. Because if it were by works, it wouldn't be by grace. But since it's by grace, it's not by works. That's That's what he's getting at. 
So this is what God's always done. He's always reserved people for himself. He's always had this faithful remnant. There ha- the gospel is the power of God unto salvation because God at this very present time is saving people. This is what God does. God's saving Israelites. He's still saving Jews. And again, I would argue when he makes that reference at this present time, we can draw that forward nearly 2,000 years later. S- still. Still, at this present time, God is at work saving His people. Now, we'll get to this next week. Because then the next verse, beginning in verse 7, verses 7 through 10, Paul, though, comes back with a warning. And you can tell by the way he... he, introduces it in verse 7, verse 7, what then? In other words, what do we make of all these things? So now what should be said? And I think that kind of goes back into chapter 10. And I think Paul's point now is to, is to answer the question that is kind of not been asked. And it is to ask the question, so what, what do we then make then of all of these unbelieving Jews, even though they've heard so many times what's gone on? And Paul is going then to make the point, God has hardened their hearts. He's blinded their eyes. He's closed their ears. So, we, we've got the positive reality, but yet there's also this warning that's going to be issued. And we'll, we'll try and flesh that out better next week, okay? Because I don't want to just, in the next minute or two, kind of drop on you teaching about the hardening of God. But I will go ahead and tell you now... You, Do I have everyone's attention right here at the end? All right, we're almost done. Hold on, okay? I know it is 5,000 degrees in here, all right? But hold on. You will not like the answer. (laughs) What preacher tells you that, right? What preacher ever says, we're going to talk about something in the Bible and you're not going to like it, right? But that's going to be the content of my sermon next week, all right? But but here's here's the the reality. It's, It's important that we get... The full diet of God's Word, right? Because here's what God does with His Word. I'm convinced God often puts stuff in the Bible knowing that you and I won't understand it because it forces you to bow before Him and His Word and admit you hardly know anything. And if Romans 9-11 through hadn't done that, you need to go back and read it again, alright? Because that's what it does forces me into this, where God's giving me this grand picture of His predestinating, electing work, yet at the same time, I'm responsible, pastor, I don't know how to reconcile it. So what? You're still bound to demonstrate fidelity and allegiance, belief in the Word. And I would warn you, I would warn you against what perhaps could be an obstinate rebellion to always try and make everything in the Bible make sense. I know what you want me to tell you. You want me to tell you stuff that makes God sound like not such a bad guy. So that you can then say that to others, perhaps. The truth is we are forced into a situation where we have to trust what God has said about Himself is true and He is still good and righteous and loving and just. And that's where we'll go next week. But these first six verses really is Paul's positive assessment 
of what God is doing. God is currently at work saving people. So, so let me end with kind of two points of application here. I don't know if they're points, but just kind of to bring it forward. And I've got it on the next slide. It's not in your notes. Here's what I love about the example of Paul and the example taken from the day of Elijah. This illustrates to me that God is at work saving hard cases and in the midst of hard cultures. Is that not a brilliant way Paul makes his argument when he brings out himself? You want to talk about somebody in the first century who was one of the least likely people to believe the gospel? I mean, I guess Caesar would have been least likely, less likely, and Herod, right? Maybe the high priest. But otherwise, Paul's in the top five list. If you're making a list of the people I don't need to bother sharing the gospel with because they'll never believe it, you're going to put the guy who held guys' coats so that they could stone a believer, right? That's what you would do. In fact, you know the only prayers that these believers would have prayed about Paul? I'm just speculating here. But my guess is the believers in the early church, when he was Saul, were praying, one, don't let him cross paths with me. Number two, kill him before he does. Paul was the single greatest threat, earthly threat, to the early church from outside of it. And yet God saved him. I want you to think about the people in your life that are hard cases. Maybe the people that you think I've prayed for them for 30 years. Pray for them for 31. Preacher, I, I, I've shared the gospel with them a dozen times. Make it 13. Is God going to save them? Save them? I don't have any idea. I don't have any idea. But here's what I'm certain of. He can. He can. I don't know what God is doing in that grand sovereign work. He doesn't give me a peek on, to that extent behind that curtain. All right, I don't know. But I do know anyone can be saved. Not everyone will be saved, but anyone can be saved. Anyone of every tribe, of every tongue, of every nation, in every household, every hard case, every stiff-necked person, every stubborn closed-eared, closed-minded individual. Any of them could be saved to the furthest reaches of this planet. Anyone can be saved. This, by the way, is why we do missionary work, because we believe God is saving people everywhere, right? But then also in the midst of hard cultures. Now, granted, we can't identify with Elijah because we don't know what it's like to live in a culture where paganism and sin is celebrated. wait a minute, reverse that, right? Yeah, do we know what it's like to be in a culture where it seems like you can believe whatever you want to believe except believing the truth? Do we know what it's like to be in a culture where it seems like anybody is free to practice what they want to practice as long as you don't add the name Jesus to it? Do you know what it's like to think that the, that the lion's share of the culture you live in does not believe in the truth of God's Word? So these words are good. These are encouraging words, right? God is still saving hard cases and He's still saving people in the midst of hard cultures. I know you may look at the culture around you and worry and it seems like we're moving further and further away. Well, that may indeed be the case. Understand. It is not the power of your argument unto salvation. It is not the power of your intellect unto salvation. 
It is not the power of your ability to understand and make other people understand unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He's saving hard people, and he's saving them in hard cultures. So that's good news. It's good news. So I would encourage you this morning... If you're here today and you know somebody who's in that hard place, what's God going to do with them? I don't know, but I do know God can still save. They still have breath. God can still save. Of course, if there's anybody here who does not know Christ as Savior, if you still leave this place without knowing Him, you'll want to be here next Sunday just so you absolutely know the danger that you find yourself in. Because what, in essence, we're going to find out next Sunday is though God can save anyone, He doesn't give that anyone an unlimited amount of opportunity. He doesn't. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, believe He died for you and rose from the dead, and ask God to save you based on what Christ and Christ alone has done, then I implore you to do just that. I'll be down front if you'd like to talk with me more about that. I'll be down front after the service if you'd like to talk more about that. But maybe there's somebody in here that really what the burden is on your heart is now you've got somebody in mind. You've got a Saul, a Paul in mind. Maybe you'd like to pray for them. Pray for them where you are. You can come. You can pray here. How would you respond then to God's Word being brought to bear upon your life? Let's stand together and I'll pray. And after I pray, sing a great song of the faith. I surrender all. And in fact, is that my commitment today? Father God, we do thank You for gathering us. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the power that you invest in the gospel unto salvation, and that you are still in the business of saving people. So, Father, we, we pray that we would be faithful then to this gospel, to declare it, to, to proclaim it to others, to, to believe it for the sake of others, to know that, that indeed you're still saving people. And, Father, may we just find ourselves obedient sons and daughters of the living God, living as you have commanded and all for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.